like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm very excited to welcome today's guest. You better get down with the sickness because she's the awesome artist behind that series and Black Stars Above. Please welcome Jenna Cha. Hi, down with the sickness. Oh, so funny. I'm sure very original. (laughs) The first time you've heard that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, where it all started for you? My history with horror, man, we go way back. You know, we've we've been through a lot together. (laughs) A lot of good times, a lot of bad times. You know, we, we make it work. A lot of road bumps. We've gone to therapy together. Yeah, we're in it for the long run. Uh, <laughs> I'll answer your question. Um, I was, I've always been like an extremely scared child. And like, I, I can't emphasize that enough. My earliest, most vivid memory is being scared. <laughs> I was like three years old at Disneyland and we were in the, the haunted mansion as a, a three-year-old brain, like, you know, I can, I can picture it just it being, works. Being, being fucking, exactly. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks Walt Disney for the trauma. I guess, I guess that's that kind of like, you know, lent to where I am today. So, so I have to thank Walt Disney for, for my legacy. I've, I've only really ever known, you know, fear and anxiety. And I, and I truly mean that. Like, I, I really do. I, I grew up very anxious as a kid because my my household was was pretty there was a bit of hostility in my in my household growing up and and somehow that like you know managed to manifest in a way that made me not want to act out on it like I didn't become like you know thankfully I didn't I didn't act out on my fears I just tried to hide from them in every single way and everything made me scared <laughs> literally everything like loud noises any kind of visual like any any kind of you know image that I I didn't you know totally jive with it would just elicit fear. I remember when I was maybe like six or seven, my my mom and I would often go to the the video rental store, and I one time accidentally wandered into the the horror section, and classic. <laughs> I, I was just suddenly like surrounded by all of these like front facing VHS tapes of of like. 80s horror movie covers like like Bride of Chucky. I remember like Killer Clowns and the the Candyman poster really scared me. I, I distinctly remember seeing the cover for Chud that, that I wouldn't rediscover until like 20 years later. <laughs> um, and that that scared me so that like experience traumatized me so bad. I literally refused to step into the VHS store. Just because, like, I didn't want to accidentally, like, you know. Sure, they could be around any corner. Exactly, like they could get me somehow. In my <laughs> mind, it was like I don't want to be in proximity of this thing that could get me somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it leaks into the other sections. I get. Yeah, it. I exactly. Get it. You never know. Like <laughs> around the corner, someone could have just haphazardly placed, you know, killer clowns in the in right next to you've got mail, and and I'd be none the wiser <laughs> as a poor little kid. Well, you've got mail covered as the best horror movie ever made on this very I podcast. Was gonna, yes. <laughs> wow. That was in my head somehow. I wanted to bring that up. I was like, man, I really, I'm so glad finally someone said it. <laughs> it's true. That belongs in the horror section, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The horror of really what it means for a movie to be, to be dated. <laughs> in this era. Holy shit. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really didn't get over my, my fear of horror movies until I was like 15. My three big ones were Chucky, Freddy Krueger, and Pennywise. And I did not get over my fear of those things until I was like into in, in high school. Better than me. It took me to college. So there you go. Well, then, you know, yeah, we could we, we could all only be so lucky <laughs> to hold on to our fears as long as we can. <laughs> the way I kind of think of it is as fear and the horror genre is kind of the only thing is like the best thing I knew growing up and and the thing I understood very well, which is why it has influenced my work now, you know. I'm still scared of a lot of things, you know, I, you know, not, not to the fucking like immobilizing degree as a kid, but I, I, I understand like where, where my work comes from now, you know, it's just, I, I, I understand myself better. I understand the world better. I understand relationships better when, you know, it's kind of pushed into this lens of, of vulnerability and, and terror and, you know, existential smallness. So, so. definitely that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite subgenre? Something that you're like, oh, I'm constantly reaching for this when I'm walking through that horror section of the video store. Huh. Yeah. Man, when's the last time I walked through a video store? <laughs> That's wow. Yeah, damn. That, that, that'll be my night for, for tonight. <laughs> the, like, the, the, the tangible feeling of, of, of time going by. Sure. I've recently, since I've started working in horror through through comics and drawing i always go to body horror i don't know exactly if i like understand the, the body horror genre on like a literary sense you know like on like a philosophical sense i love junji ito I'll, I'll, I'll say that and and junji ito definitely he counts as body horror but For sure there's something about the the audacity of of drawing what he draws like are you familiar with uzumaki yeah yeah like there there's something about from like an artist standpoint of being able to draw and being being able to manipulate the laws of physics in a way that somehow is has clarity and is understood that i find i find fascinating like you know someone like junji ito he draws what he draws because he can he has that he has this like abuse of power as an artist that he can he's he's able to understand flesh and like the objectivity of bodies in a way that he can do whatever he wants with them and that's like that's really cool to me i don't know i totally agree you know body horror is definitely uh, i i think it has overtaken it used to be Mm. slashers and then as i've gotten more and more into horror body horror is the one that still affects me the most and it's still the most interesting to me. And I think that exactly what you're talking about in terms of the object nature of the human body and what it means to be a human and mm-hmm. at what point does it stop? Do you be, yeah. do you cross that threshold? Yeah. You know, that is so fascinating to me and it is explored in Ito's work, in Cronenberg's work, in all of these great explorations of humanity and and that distortion is just so powerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I remember in art school, uh, I took a class. It was called. It, it was. It, it had to do with the body used in in art, like the history of art, and that 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 meant a lot of things. But basically, my um my my thesis, my final thesis for that class was a a a critical analysis on on Cronenberg movies, and and I chose The Brood, The Fly, and I think Shivers. 
Um, wow. I will forget the last one, but basically I was kind of tying all those movies together in, in a way that understood how, how the manipulation of the body has to do with a, a both kind of like a relationship between the person being affected and, and their, their environment. Yeah. And, and, and nobody, nobody got like, nobody <laughs> was, nobody in the class was like on board with that at all. Oh man. The only question I, I got after my, my thesis presentation was, are you like just assuming all of this or is this like <laughs> actually what the filmmaker was like trying to say? And this was like, I had like a series of books that were solely meant on a critical analysis of Cronenberg. And it was really, it was really kind of revealing <laughs> at the time of like, because at that point I was like, I was into body horror as, as an artist. And at that point I was kind of like, okay, I have work to do. You know, I have, <laughs> this is my, my mission now. Like, you know, if not for me, if other people kind of understood, you know, where I'm coming from or, or, or it's like in a way that I want like to understand where Cronenberg is coming from. I have to kind of be true to, to, to this, to this subgenre and, you know, not take it for granted or anything like that. So, you know, yeah, I, I take it seriously. You know, I, I, I put my, whatever modicum of like intellect I have, you know, in my, in my simian brain, you know, into <laughs> my work and stuff and, and, you know, philosophy and sincerity and stuff like that. So, you know, it's crucial. Yeah. It's crucial it to is. making yeah. good art. I agree. Yeah. And I think that is what Cronenberg does so well, him in particular. And I think that he is still doing it. You know, Crimes yeah. of the Future, the way that it interacts with plasticity and, and what we put into our bodies and stuff. Mm. Just incredible. He's yeah. one of the best to ever do it, no doubt. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. Glad, glad, glad I have one person who <laughs> would have understood <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> But the movie we're talking about today is pretty far from yes. uh, from Cronenberg. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the opposite. <laughs> sorry, I love tangents. I'm sorry if this is a, an interview of nothing but tangents. I'll no, I love it. That's what we're here to talk about. Okay, cool. Great. <laughs> but the movie we're talking about today is Night of the Hunter, the directorial debut of Charles Lawton in 1955, and sadly, the directorial finale of Charles Lawton as well. 1955. Interesting year for America. This is also when a section of the sickness takes place. Pretty evocative time to be sure. There's a lot of nationalism. There's also a lot of darkness under the surface. People had seen the worst shit that a human could do to another during World War II. There's a lot of suspicion about loyalties in the aftermath. Racism is rampant. And you have this seemingly pristine Americana and the rot seething underneath something that people like David Lynch and even Cronenberg, you know, like to play with a lot. Cronenberg kind of surfaces that in a little bit more direct way, but the sickness jumps decades as well in a way that to me kind of points to how these issues can manifest and repeat themselves. Uh, you know, we see Daniel clearly terrified of what his father has stained him with, but you also see it in little moments like Betty's sister talking about picking up cleanliness neuroses from their mother and the schizophrenic patients report indicating that feeling like the American dream had been pulled out from under them. And so I, I found it just really fascinating the way that this specific time in which Night of the Hunter gets made and so fully represents the American situation at the time is so represented in your own work as well. Oh, that, that's, that, that's really great to hear. Definitely the points that I am fascinated with, like the, the kind of points in, in history that I kind of want to explore like like to a t you know i'm not making any like revelatory 
statements right now. Like this is, you know, this is all very well known, but the the the, the fact that the fifties in particular is so misrepresented and and insincere in in how it's depicted, just in pop culture. I don't even know. I don't know. Like that show, like Miss Maisel. Like, does that show talk about McCarthyism and 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 racism and civil rights and and like you know the 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 rampant depression that that housewives felt? And there, there's something so so interesting about how insincere that point in in American history is on a surface level. The way the way it's presented, I kind of feel like my fascination with the dichotomy between how how certain decades are presented and, and how they were um i think my, that that that's such an interesting internal analysis of ones of how one kind of sees sees the world you know this is kind of digging into it but as a as like an, an anxious person you know sometimes i don't feel like you know i i feel a disconnect between you know myself and my environment growing up as a as an anxious kid that's how i felt so so i think maybe I was drawn to old movies because there's there's this kind of weird imitation of of how people act back then, an imitation of what life was. You know, like people always make fun of how how old movies feel so stilted and and goofy, but at the time, like that's just how, how it was. Right. At the time, that's just how people acted in movies. You know, and and it was like it is what it is. So so who are we to say? You know, it's it's weird now, sure, but you know, right? They're still getting the hang of the artificiality of it all. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And and there's, I don't know, I, like part of me wants to kind of always understand what the zeitgeist was when these movies were made, why they acted the way they acted, why why they made these artistic choices, why they made these written choices, because often it doesn't make sense otherwise if you don't know where where everyone was coming from at the time. Which is which is fine. Like you know, people can still enjoy all these old movies without, without like kind of getting the the time period in which they come from. But th- I'm just that's that's what fa- I, I'm fascinated by by stuff like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I find it pretty interesting as well because there is sort of a the fish doesn't know the water's wet, right? And so when you're in the time period that you're in, you're not like oh. Like, culture has evolved in X, Y, Z ways. And so when you watch a movie today, and there's such an emphasis on naturalism and realism, and so people go back and they watch, like, a movie from Italy in the 70s, and they go, this looks insane. Mm -hmm. It's so over the top. The blood looks like paint. It doesn't look anything like blood. Mm -hmm. How can anyone enjoy this movie? The dubbing is all weird. And they just they have a tough time reaching back into that context and being like, there is an emphasis on expressionism at this time. It's not about that adherence to realism. And as you're saying, sort of breaking through that barrier and understanding what it's like to create those decisions, what led them to that path is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think the night of the hunter too is a, is a, is a cool example of, of how to how to break that down just in terms of like the production and the, the way it was made and the, the decisions made and stuff like i i just watched i watched a video on the cinematographer of night of the hunter and the cinematographer did he did movies for orson wells fritz lang all these kind of like big classic dudes oh sam sam fuller too and he comes from like a very expressionistic school of of cinema right 
which is obvious when you you know when you watch when you watch Night of the Hunter. He talked about how Charles Lawton was really inspired by silent movies when he made this movie. And it's weird because the section of silent movies that, that Charles Lawton was, was drawing from were from a naturalistic point of view. So like D.W. Griffith, the way he shot nature and stuff, it, it was very like brightly lit. It was a lot of natural light, um, kind of these like these uh, sweeping, you know, forest landscapes. Like when you're in the scenery and stuff, it's like it's really dense, uh, just like really stark contrast, you know, like you just feel the like leaves and the light, from, you know, surrounding you and stuff. And at the same time, there was also all of this like crazy expressionism in, the, in Night of the Hunter. You know, it's like you have these scenes of, of like, you know, beautiful daylight where everyone's just kind of standing around in a in a picnic, you know, singing these Christian hymns and stuff. <laughs> And then, and then the next scene, you're in a fucking like dark gothic southern horror house where it's like all you can make out are these these like blocks of shadow as the subtle movements of of your of your foe, you know, creep towards you know, yeah the one the one you know the one thing you don't want to die. So so it's it's like interesting, kind of this melding of of eras and of influences in this movie that was made, I, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead now, but I guess I wanted to to mention that it's it's interesting that this movie, it was made in 1955. It was made, you know, in the, the nuclear family era. And yet it takes place during the Great Depression in the Dust Bowl. For the, the status quo was having, you know, the best life they could have had, you know, in, at the time this came out. And it was this kind of reminder of, of how things were. Not so long ago. Even. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's it's like made in this kind of I don't I don't want to say it was you know a a a, a reminder or memory or, or whatever of how of how bad things were but it was almost like a dream of of that era if if someone in 1955 was watching this movie it almost felt like it could have been like you know the dream of how hard things were of how of how like rough and and gritty and you know nightmarish things things were back then. Definitely. Absolutely. Lawton himself had been a famous actor of stage and screen for decades in England and a successful character actor here in the U.S. since the 30s, probably most famous for being Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Paul Gregory, an actor turned agent, saw Lawton on The Ed Sullivan Show reading from the Bible while at a bar, and the whole bar had fallen silent while watching his oratorical skill. So this guy pays his bill, rushes out, heads to the theater, catches Lawton in an alleyway, and he's like, Mr. Lawton, I gotta talk to you. <laughs> I found God, Mr. Lawton. <laughs> he signs Lawton on the spot, and they assemble a dramatic quartet to perform with. And he, in fact, starts to direct these stage productions. He gets the taste for it. He wants to try a movie. And at that time, Davis Grubbs' The Night of the Hunter was moving up the bestsellers list. It's pretty early in the life cycle of Southern Gothic, and in fact, the term does not exist as yet. Faulkner had been laying some groundwork, as had Grubbs' peers Tennessee Williams and Carson McCullers. Flannery O'Connor, though, she didn't release uh, until the f her first collection until 55. Mm. So it literally is like right in the heat of it. And this was in the air, you know, the Southern Gothic tropes of lyrical prose, Puritanism and its mirrored dark fascination with sex, the religious imbuement and the good old boys sipping whiskey, all pretty exotic to the rest of America, who felt like they were taking a peek behind the curtains of propriety. 
And because of Lawton's interest, Gregory buys the rights, and Lawton is stoked. He had this really funny quote about how great and intense the movie was going to be. He, he wanted people to actually be gripped. And he said, when I first went to the movies, audiences sat in their seats straight. Now they all slump down with their heads back, and they eat their candy and popcorn. I want them to sit straight again. Yeah. Hell yeah. You tell them. <laughs> Grubb himself was a big movies fan, so he and Lawton struck up a correspondence to discuss approaching the adaptation, even sending Lawton casting ideas and drawings of how he wanted the scenes to look or imagine them looking. Uh, a lot of them were very storyboard-esque, and it was really funny to me where, like, in, in the behind-the-scenes stuff, they were talking about this, it sounded so serious, and then they cut to one of the pictures of Mitchum's character looking insane. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I get it. I get it now. (laughs) (laughs) I will say the underwater shot was even creepier in drawing somehow, which is, you know, already very scary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, oh man. Okay. I, I have a feeling the underwater shot like discussion will, will come, will, will come when it comes. So we can for say sure. That. All right. We we'll that for when we talk about the movie. Plenty more. to talk about with it sure. for sure. Yeah, sure. There was some talk about Grubb himself adapting the novel, but producers wanted someone with more experience and Lawton knew he needed someone who could still feel truthful in adapting it. So he brings in James Agee of Tennessee as the screenwriter, a notable critic as well as screenwriter who was recently nominated for an Academy Award thanks to his work on The African Queen. And he wanted James for two reasons. First, not only that Southern sensibility he needed, but he was also very familiar with the work of D.W. Griffith, who, as you said, very heightened, poetic melodrama. That's exactly what Night of the Hunter needed. And Lawton was cultivating that. Even his directorial style, you know, where the director, he would cut in mid-take. He would he would be fine-tuning and tweaking the performance as it was happening in a way that was a lot like the silent film era. There was a great second disc with the Blu-ray on the Criterion Collection with a two and a half hour behind the scenes thing where you literally just get to watch him directing with the camera running. Mm-hmm. It's really wild. Can't recommend it enough to people who are a fan of this movie. But A.G. himself was also known for being able to transport viewers into a childlike perspective, something very crucial to this movie, as you need to feel the helplessness and the fear of the main characters being menaced by this preacher who is more than he seems, the character itself an emblem of that Americana that we were talking before. You know, this pristine image with the filth, greed, rot underneath. Mm-hmm. A lot of people over the years have kind of overlooked A.G. and his contributions since he had a bit of a self-destructive streak and he was a known alcoholic. They assumed it was mostly Lawton all the way until 2003, when his first draft was found, demonstrated a lot of the iconic imagery from the beginning. What did happen is he delivered this insanely long 293-page draft that Lawton had to trim back to 148 pages, so certainly a collaboration, we'll say. Sadly, A.G. died at the uh, age of 45 in 1955 before getting to see the movie. It was a shock. Yeah, I've read, like, kind of conflicting accounts on, on, like, yeah, I don't think, I don't think A.G. got enough credit. People always say, like, oh, Lawton, it's, like, all Lawton. You know, he did the whole, he, he, his rewrites, like, yes, like his rewrites were how the movie turned out, but the guy like fucking, you know, AG, he, he did a, a fucking three, 300 page <laughs> screenplay, you know, that's gotta, that's gotta count for something. Definitely. And it's all there, right? You know, you yeah. look at the first draft and it's, it, the movie is there. So trimming it back, nothing to sneeze at, but also, you know, sure he's working off of the foundation that AG built. 
Yeah, I, I think he was like kind of young too at the time. Like I might be misremembering. But... Yeah, he's uh, forty-five. So yeah. Oh, By the way, heart, heart. Uh, my my camera is very uh, very has a very cool retro um, glaze over it right now. <laughs> very gauzy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I tried wiping it and I just made it worse. <laughs> I have like tape. I have masking tape over my my camera because I'm I'm a paranoid freak. Uh, and sure. I just Ruined I, the, the masking tape shit like made it made it worse so classic residue I'm gonna, that's how i'm gonna look <laughs> <laughs> lawton is also seeking out someone familiar with working in black and white uh, this deliberately old-fashioned aesthetic will align with the story and its emotions and it does wind up being his pal stanley cortez also an academy award nominee for his work on the magnificent ambersons uh sour old cortez they called him <laughs> That's so accurate. Interviews with him, he yeah. sounds like just a grumpy ass, crabbly old motherfucker. That's right. He's like been beaten. His his jadedness can move mountains. Like <laughs> just made him this this husk of a grumpy old man. Yeah, it, it, the nickname definitely felt appropriate. Mm-hmm. The lighter equipment as they enter the fifties also allows them to get away from the more static lockdowns of the forties. There's a lot of interesting movement. His high contrast style is perfect here for capturing the themes of light versus dark. Mm-hmm. And the style and Lawton's intentions to create a shadow-filled, dreamlike atmosphere sort of intersect with their low budget. $800,000 uh, at the time. So a lot of sets like the courtroom and the show at the beginning or the neon lights of the town are kind of just a room that's lit interestingly. Mm-hmm. And as great as the performances are, which they are incredible across the board, I do think that it is the cinematography that really helps to elevate this to the next level. Yes, I agree. Even the second unit director, Terry Sanders, was about to win an Oscar for his short film. So turning into quite the crossover event here between Mm All-Stars. You also have Walter Schumann as the composer. Also really great work. I'm personally terrible at recognizing musical themes for characters. And yeah. so the, the commentary was really helpful for them pointing out like how the score interacted with the movie itself. Really, really cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. As far as actors, Shelley Winters plays the grieving mother. You might call her Weeping Willa. I sort of love how unsure this role is. You know, life has sort of overwhelmed her. She's desperate for some help. And this was developed, interestingly, as we saw from the Charles Lawton directs bonus feature. You know, he he had her tweaking the lines, repeating things over and over to get it just right. But that unsurety of if you're getting it right translates into the character. You know, Willa is also unsure of if she's getting it right, and it really helps her to inhabit the character. She described the character as a fly who is fascinated with a spider and walks willingly into the web. Yeah, I think that is a, that, that's such a perfect way of putting it. That's exactly how her performance feels in the, in the movie. Yeah. And our spider was Robert Mitchum, so incredible. He's hot at the time with a bad boy image after some jail time for marijuana possession in 1948. (laughs) We got a bad boy on our hands. (laughs) That's right. He's the idol of Elvis Presley. Yeah. (laughs) And in fact, Lawton told one of the crew members, someone selling God has to be sexy. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why he wanted Mitchum here. Mm -hmm. And part of what makes this role so incredible to me is that it does go a little bit against type for him. Both before and after this movie, he made his name playing the noir hero with melancholy eyes and an indolent tone. But in this, he's very much a glutton. 
not just for wealth, but we see his emotions are felt in such abundance that he can't keep a lid on them no matter what the situation, his lust, his violence, his greed, all a facet of that same gluttonous character. He plays a preacher and terrifyingly views himself as carrying out God's will all the while. In fact, his introduction is his speaking to God saying, thanks for sending me these widows so that I can take their money and preach your word. How many has it been? Six? Twelve? We find out it is, in fact, even much more than that. But for him to be so casual about the difference between six and twelve murders. <laughs> yeah. You can't kill a world. That's, yeah. Well, he's he's doing his best. Yeah. <laughs> According to the commentary, he hated Paul Gregory so much that he peed into his all-white Cadillac convertible. Nice. Oh, I love him even more now. (laughs) Mitchum really cultivating that reputation. Yeah. Rachel Cooper is played by Lillian Gish, herself a multi-time collaborator with Griffith, who Lawton was fascinated with, as we said. And this really great, sturdy counterpoint to the fragility captured by Winters. I I think that they are such great sort of bookends on the movie or on the story. Yeah. I-, I was kind of thinking about it. Um, I feel like Shelley Winter's character, the feeling I get is that she is a- an extremely exhausted woman. She is weakened by exhaustion, but she is strong. She has the ability to be strong. Yeah. I, I see, I see Lillian Gish's character as kind of the opposite. Like she looks like she, she could be exhausted and weak, but her strength is, is very much on, on the, on the surface, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, like, like a perfect counterpart. I also do think that Shelley Winters's role is sort of overlooked a lot when people are talking about this movie for a lot of the same reasons, oftentimes sexist reasons that people Mm -hmm. overlook the Shelley Duvall role in the shining or the Barbara role in night of the living dead. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to have to, feel that shock and communicate these emotions that are the emotional truth of the story. Yeah. Like that is carrying it. And, and a lot of people don't give them credit for it. You know, I, I love Robert Mitchum. He's incredible, but it's, it's easy to be bombastic and it's not as easy to play uh, uh, meek. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I agree. I, I, I think I, when I, when I first saw this movie, I thought Shelley Winters performance was like pretty extra and like like a little over the top at times and like kind of dramatic but as i as i watched it more and more growing up i i started realizing how much of the 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 silent movie uh influences were in there and um Mm -hmm. all of the i feel i think all of the performances especially if you're being directed by fucking charles lawton you know this is gonna happen but the the performances kind of have to have this this heightened sweeping angular you know boldness that has to match you know the environments they're in and stuff um right and i i I realize now that like her performance too is is like it coincides with robert mitchum's character like his performance too i i feel like without one another they would their their performances would kind of would be seen differently you know it's very Definitely. much a, it's very much like a a call and response between between both of them um because Robert Mitchum too is he, he his performance is kind of described as like it's a very dramatic almost like stage like like performance um with his like booming voice and his like crazy kind of 
up and down elocution of this like you know godly you know i'm I'm being like you know thrown around by by the will of god and that's you can right. hear that in his voice <laughs> he's like very very dramatic i don't know how to describe it yeah and and yeah like that that probably comes from lawton being a super dramatic guy you know he's like a shakespearean actor but also it's probably kind of like if you if you took away the dialogue and just overlaid it with with like Silent Hill or Silent Hill Wow, <laughs> <laughs> Silent music, Silent film music. James Sunderland approaches <laughs> very different. <movie. laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, put put Robert Mitchum and Shelley Winters in a in a a virtual YouTube space. What? Never mind. <laughs> I'm referencing the new Silent Hill essential. Oh yeah, whatever bullshit nightmare. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like you know, their 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 performances are very reminiscent of of silent movies, in my opinion. So definitely, the over definitely. The, uh, the if it is over the top at times, I think it, I realize now that it, that it, that's very fitting. When the movie came out, United Artists kind of blundered the ad campaigns. They promised something it was, or they promised something it wasn't. Didn't emphasize the children in peril. Uh, you know, they showed one of the posters that, like, the tagline was the wedding night, the anticipation, the kiss, the knife, but above all, the suspense. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, yeah, that's that's in there, but yeah, I don't know if it's how I would sell the movie. <laughs> quotes, yeah, that's more like a like a crazy Hitchcock movie than a than a yeah. you know, an arty quote unquote movie, as someone put it back then. Yeah, so it sadly was a critical and financial bomb. It made a few top 10 lists, but mostly even the highest praise was mixed. And so it played briefly in theaters, then disappeared for No Man's Land, late night television. (laughs) Sadly, this crushed Lawton's spirit because the stage plays had been such successes. RKO took away his next film, Making the Dead, and his partnership with Gregory dissolved and he never directed again. Uh, One of a kind, indeed. Mm On TV, though, younger viewers discovered it, and by the 70s, a new guard of critics and academics were reevaluating its merits, and indeed the elements that are well ahead of its time. I mean, just look at a series of unfortunate events. Like, this is basically That's true. Yeah, yeah. That is so true. Wow. Yeah, just great gothic fairy tale, very in vogue now, you know, it's it's really, really great stuff. And its stature has continued to grow into today, where we declare it. The best horror movie ever made. Yep. Officially. <laughs> you've heard it. You heard it now. That's Official. right. That's right. <laughs> At the time of this pod release. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the plot, I do want to just couch it with one uh, little thing from Charles Lawton directs where he opens with some quotes from the Bible that he felt were important, mm-hmm. including one that does open the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, first was blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Then was even King Solomon in all his glory was not as beautiful as the lilies of the field. Judge not that ye be not judged. And then finally, and this is the one that opens the movie itself. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. All very thematic quotes. Clearly he is interested in the dichotomy between actual religion and the what it what the gospel is actually preaching and the people who utilize it as a way to manipulate people and and get their fill it's it just is pretty fascinating i think for him to clearly have such disdain for robert mitchum's character and and what he's doing while also still feeling that there is plenty of good to be found in the teachings Mm -hmm. yeah it's really cool how that was able to be pulled off 
for 1955 too. Yeah. Like they, they, they somehow let that slide. <laughs> I think Paul Gregory had to like really kind of play the game with the production code to, to let that slide. I, I think, I think like he had to convince them that, that the preacher was not like an actual preacher, but he was someone, you know, he doesn't represent like, you know, actual like good Christian men that we live next to in 1955 (laughs) but that is yeah like that is that is interesting how that is such a compelling horror character you know yeah i i i find what i find so scary about the preacher is exactly that like exactly how there is no shortage even like today of people who are like deluded by selfish inward ego-filled delusion that i think i already said delusion but they, they're just they, the people who are who who have no semblance of understanding or regarding their environment and they completely think they are they are the guy like right you think they are the only person that matters and it's not god talking to anyone else it's t- they're talking to me <laughs> and you can't tell me otherwise like you can't tell me i'm wrong you know you're not the one's hearing hearing god's voice there's like no rhyme or reason there's no point in trying to reason with this guy you know people like that scare me <laughs> people who can't For be sure. with like i understand it's like you know like any any talk, choose any slasher any famous slasher you know in, in 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 media and it's like oh it's the guy who can't be reasoned with but the preacher is like he could be he exists you know <laughs> yeah he exists in our government. He exists in our in our religion. In our in our any establishment that you can identify, <laughs> like the tech world. Yeah, this is real. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And 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 when you mix religion into into shit like that, you know, it's even less of a of a question of whether or not they could be reasoned with. Right. And that's what scares me. You know, I think this is a perfect a perfect kind of amalgamation of that in in a in a in a well a well made story. It's not. It doesn't. You know have the preacher we we know the preacher just enough as a person to know where he's coming from without it being like hammered over your head like like jigsaw or something right. you know you know like where the philosophy is like okay like right don't you don't need they to explore know, like, it too much where it doesn't make sense anymore exactly exactly <laughs> yes yeah or like the joker or something you know right the the movie and the book for that matter allows us to be a bit intimate with the preacher in the beginning and we know how kind of why he's dangerous and 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 where he's coming from and it's just enough that you know it's like you know just just the right amount where we we care about him we we care about how formidable he is but he's distant enough where we're 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 not we can't be too predicted you know we don't right. really know where he's gonna what he's gonna do next absolutely and to your point about having to play ball with the production code and everything one of the this is a, a for the time surprisingly faithful adaptation yeah. one of the few changes from the book is that the preacher does talk about jesus in the book he doesn't do that in the movie yeah. uh, and in fact there's a, a very crucial line where where the father says, what religion do you even preach? And he says, oh, it's one that I have worked out betwixt the almighty yeah. and myself. It's like, oh, okay, dude. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this guy's fucked. <laughs> you know when someone claims they have a personal 
<laughs> special relationship religion with God. You know, you know he's he's going to fucking slit your throat. <laughs> yeah. It's game over. Game over for sure. So the score, as we enter the movie, does present the themes of good and evil right away. We hear the demonic preacher's theme and the angelic choir in conflict over the opening credits. So really great tone setting right away. Some kids find the corpse of the preacher's last victim, and we cut to him driving along. Not a care in the world. Mm-hmm. It's pretty It's pretty shocking. Like, yeah, it is. It's a pretty shocking cut. Oh, my God. It's so I, It's so good. Like, the... Yeah, the score, like, oh, for with the score, the score is so, is so cool. Um, it's got this, like, this very Hollywood, like, da, 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 kind of like almost like The Shining or something. It would, yeah. These, like, like, these booming, you know, strings. And then it, and then it kind of fizzles into this, like, soft, childlike lullaby with, like, the, yeah, like, the kids' heads in the beginning, like, they're, they're, their disembodied heads uh, <laughs> in space. Um, and just this, like, yeah, it's just like this, this like perfect kind of uh, tone setter of, of these two worlds. Like you have the perspective of the children. It's, it's, you know, very dreamlike, very storybook. And the music is, it, it puts you right into this, like this feeling of innocence. So beautiful. Like I love, I fucking love that that opening score. I'm wearing. So do do you like do you listen to Mike Patton at all? Uh, I'm not too familiar. I I know of him, but I, yeah. I haven't checked out too much of his stuff myself. So he's part of this group called Phantomas, and that group did a a whole album dedicated to to um, Hollywood scores. Oh wow! And one of one of the the things they did was the Night of the Hunter theme. Damn, that sounds sick. I could fucking scream. It's so good. It makes me so happy. So for the occasion, I'm wearing my my phantom <laughs> shirt wow like i'll have to check that out that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah it's so good and the score like throughout the movie the, the score like goes between these contrasts like you know the theme of contrasts of like these like horrifying booming strings and then you know these beautiful lullaby melodies the part when shelly winters's body is underwater it's this horrifying image that just kind of slowly creeps up on you but the music that's playing during that scene is this like, like whimsical, childlike, dreamlike, you know, melody. Yeah, totally that, asynchronous. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it, but it's like it's like you know, it flo- the the music flows like the fucking water and the seaweed, you know, and, and her hair. It's like it's so it works. Like yeah, it's it's contrast, but it couldn't have been done any other way. You know, there is a perfect marriage between between these two elements of the film. Yeah, you know, we talked about the performances and how they have to ride the line of overly theatrical and and finding that naturalism as well. And the score too, you know, in that moment, if it had gone for those booming strings and and had been like, bah, 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 like mm-hmm. that would be too much. You go, okay, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. I get it. Yeah, But by having it sort of lull you into that false sense of anticipation because it does start in just the seaweed and stuff and you don't see it right away you have this yeah. score lull you say well nothing bad could possibly happen <laughs> with the <this> score yeah <laughs> so true <laughs> well, and then <laughs> suddenly <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so the opening with the the kids just kind of playing around and then they find the dead body like that's fucked up. Like it starts out putting you into this world of like, oh, we're putting these two things together: kids and dead bodies. And then, right. like, and then it's this like heavenly bird's eye view of the landscape as it zooms into Robert Mitchum, just kind of like 
I've been along. Yeah. And, and like, you know, he's he, like you said, he's kind of taking it with stride. It's like, it's just, just like, bam, bam, bam. Like this efficient kind of tone setter of an opener. <laughs> it's really great. He's talking to God, not only about the money, but he goes into how luckily God doesn't mind the killings. His book <laughs> is full of killings, Yeah, but un- unlucky that God hates the things that make this guy horny. <laughs> Perfumed (laughs) up, lacy clothes wearing, and curly hair having things, he says. There's too many of them, he says to God while watching a burlesque show as his knife erupts from his jacket. You can't kill the world. This was an AG edition, and it is pretty frightening how quickly they move past it. Mm -hmm. You know, this phallic knife demonstrating his views perfectly. Mm -hmm. And in that first draft, it bursts from his pants pocket, Mm -hmm. not through his jacket, Mm -hmm. just to really reinforce it. Mm -hmm. And to talk again about the lighting, it frames the dancer like you're peeping through a keyhole. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of puts you into mind of the preacher and his repressive puritanism coming into conflict with his lust. Mm -hmm. And for him, that erupts out of him in violence because he doesn't know how to handle that that conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that kind of keyhole lighting is also a, a recurring visual throughout the movie. And it, it almost gives, it gives like different meaning every time it's used. You know, it, it's used during Shelley Winters' deathbed scene. It's used when Lillian Gish is having her showdown with, with Robert Mitchum at the end. It's almost like a painting, like picturesque, you know, gives different meaning every time. Yeah, absolutely. Cop comes in and arrests him not for murder, but for the theft of a car. Yeah. 30 days in jail he gets. Ah, <laughs> uh, justice. That's right. Meanwhile, a little boy John is playing with his even younger sister Pearl, and a car screams up, and out comes Pa, Ben Harper, bleeding from a gunshot wound and carrying close to 10K, which is just over $111,000 in today's money. Ben here is described by Grubb as a good man in an evil time, a hungry time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really does sum it up of this desperate act of love that he has done here. You know, it is violent and it is wrong, but in his mind, he is doing this to protect his family and to give his children something that he doesn't feel he is giving them. And so it is sort of this interesting dichotomy between him and all the visual parallels that are assembled between him and the preacher. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting that like, he he has to steal in order to protect his family. And, And, you know, you can you can hearken to the do not judge lest they be judged, whatever, like, you know, shit like that. Um, but then, but then at the same time, the God tells you to not, d- thou shall not steal, you know? So it's like, well, which is it? Like, I, I wonder, I wonder if, if Davis Grubb was, was trying to, was trying to kind of challenge our, our uh, modern sensibilities of, of this like steeped puritanical, you know, tradition that, that America uh, comes from. Hmm. I, I don't know, but. Seems possible. For, for the fact that you made, he made a, fucking preacher you know the 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 most evil person ever like that that could very that could very well be evidence enough that that's what he was going for but yeah i I don't know definitely makes sense to me and and ben hides the money just before the cops arrive gets john to swear which means promise that he'll guard pearl with his life and never tell where the money is not even to mom some really interesting balletic choreography as the cops arrive they're stepping forward as ben steps back these shots will be recreated later with mitchum there's also this really great moment where the cops are aggressively taking away his father and the boy goes don't weakly 
very helpless, and he has to sort of like find his strength, and he scree Don't! He yells. Mm-hmm. Apparently, some folks died during the holdup, so his dad is sentenced to hanging. Yeah, again, visual parallel to the shot when Mitchum was sentenced in terms of uh, this juxtaposition between the two of them. And in jail, he talks about how he did this because he was tired of children without food, wandering the woods and highways, sleeping in abandoned car heaps. And while he's in lockup, who should be his cellmate but old preacher? And he's so keyed in, he even tries to wiggle it out of bed while he slept incredible motion when Ben wakes up and slugs him in one concurrent move. (laughs) And then Robert Mitchum just hurls himself off the bed onto the ground. What a a committed guy. So funny. His hair is all like fucked up from being down. (laughs) Great stuff. Yeah. The preacher plays it cool, though, until Ben turns the questions on him. Again, this is where he says, oh, I got a religion worked out betwixt the almighty and myself. But he also checks in with God to say, hey, I knew you'd treat me right. You put me in this cell with a guy who hid the already stolen money. There's a widow to boot on the way. And so Harper dies. And we we join the hangman who wishes he was back working a, a mine. Oh, yeah. You know, famously one of the most hellish jobs imaginable. That fucking so, character. The, the way he shows up at the end is so funny. Yes. <laughs> He he says he'd rather hang or he'd rather work this job rather than hang men who are just tired of a bad lot and trying to feed their families. There is a great lingering shot of his own family as well. Uh, he's doing a shitty job to feed his kids, right? I mean, <laughs> that literally is the case for everyone Everybody. in this movie so far. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. And you swing from this level of empathy right to the nadir of empathy, school-aged children, mm-hmm. who seemingly got the whole class together to sing this mocking nursery rhyme, <laughs> hey, question hey, mark. Yeah. <laughs> so fucked up. <laughs> the kid is, the dad is dead like two hours. Yeah, These exactly, kids are like, all yeah. right, everyone get over here. Yeah. Oh, we got to <laughs> tell the kids, guys. Oh, whole, guys, make sure the kids find out. <laughs> They're about to go back to class. <laughs> yeah. Um, Pearl is young enough, though, that she doesn't even really get it. She even sings the song to herself as the two pass their mother at the ice cream shop job mm-hmm. she has. Mm-hmm. John also paused in a store window to gaze longingly at a nice watch, but he flees with Pearl after the owner comes to ask him about the money. You get this great ominous vibe as they cut back and forth from Willow's boss, Icy Spoon, incredible name. Yeah. <laughs> fucking wild. Yeah. Uh, she, she's lecturing her about needing some help raising the kids, and that keeps cutting back and forth with the dark train carrying the preacher into town. Mm-hmm. Incredible stuff. The fact yeah. that this was a stock shot that they managed to fit really? into here. Huh. Yeah, from 1943. It fits perfectly. They were yeah. going to do like miniatures and they were like, well, we have this footage of a real train coming in. So yeah. let's use that. I wonder if they like they they kind of like in post like kind of made it darker like the film itself mm, like if they, right. if they tried to like if they tried to adjust the the the, the film itself to, to be darker because it goes from like she, they're, they're sitting in an ice cream shop to hard cut and then the yeah. just like just floating towards them but it's like really dark it's like it's like almost black it's just this giant yeah. thing so i don't know Really dark. The score is doing a lot of heavy lifting as well. Yeah. You know, it really lets you. It's it's fascinating. You know exactly who's coming without yeah seeing yeah yeah seeing. yeah yeah. Very efficient movie. Yeah. Tell me a story, John. <laughs> Pearl's- <laughs> yeah. Pearl's Tell me voice. a story, John. <laughs> it just cracks me up 
every time. She's like a caricature of a cherub. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her her performance is so extra too. It's so fucking yeah. like it's so weird. <laughs> and I don't know. I like I I guess I like it. Like I I guess I do. I don't know. Yeah, her, yeah. her inflection. It, it makes me laugh. Yeah, it does. It makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> You just fooled my name, Pearl. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Is it my doll? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cut. <laughs> Nailed it. it. Yeah, it is fun. John tells her a fantastical version of their own story, where he starts to until they're interrupted by the shadow of the preacher behind him as the bad men come back into the story. Yeah. Iconic. Iconic shot. Yeah, when John looks out, he sees him there standing in the lonesome night by the light of the lantern. Mm -hmm. So tense and intimidating, partially because of the ease with which he's watching. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's almost like a specter, like where you can't, you don't, you don't, when you don't see someone get to the point they're at, it's almost like they just kind of appeared there, you know? Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think what I find scary in movies. And and vis- just like visually is our wide shots, like 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 small glimpses of people in a very wide shot. I think mm-hmm. that scares me more than anything, and I don't see that a lot. You know, like I think that 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 shot is a good example of him just standing there. You know, that's because you don't you, like if you're not able to discern your stalker's face. Like I don't know, but I don't know. I guess it's also kind of dreamlike in a way, like not being able to really look at anyone in the eye in your dreams. Uh, right. Just, just kind of like, you know, indiscernible figures that you should, that you want to, that you want to like make out and, and like understand, but you can't something so, so scary about that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of great, you know, wide shots uh, as, as you'll get into in the movie, but that one, that one, that one still creeps me out. Definitely. You know, we talked about, the way that Ari Aster in particular is sort of emblematic of using negative space in a way that really only horror does. You know, it's pretty fascinating that exactly what you're talking about in that sort of surreal nature of like that distance and playing with space is, is something that kind of horror is the only genre that really utilizes it in any meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is some usage in drama, but not, not nearly on the same level. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess it's like, it's kind of, perhaps it's because that is kind of how, how the world looks to most people. Mm. We're not, you know, we, we don't like, you know, compose ourselves in, in these, you know, <laughs> like, foreground, background, you know, ways. When we, when we look around, you know, in our world, it's usually in these, in this, like, you know, middle horizon, you know, kind of field of view. So, so maybe, maybe that, that shit's so scary because it's like, it could be me like, you know, seeing that. Sure. That makes sense. The next day, John goes to the river to check on his dad's skiff and chat with uncle Bertie, an amiable chap with a taste for whiskey. Man, my age needs a snort in the morning. He tells John. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love Uncle Bertie. <laughs> he is so great. Yeah. He also reveals to John, though. Well, so I-, I will say this will come up later, but part of what I love about the character of Uncle Bertie is that, again, it kind of lulls you into that sense of security mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he's constantly like, I'm your friend, John. Mm-hmm. You can you can rely on me mm-hmm. when you need help. 
I'll be there. Yeah. And as we will discover, that's not the case. Yeah. And so that feeling of betrayal by an adult that you trust is so powerful. And when you come back to revisit this movie and you watch it and you see how effortlessly he relates to John and how they're kind of – they're the the two that connect. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It's like Bertie, he he fails John in a way that you can't really fault him for because it's so so sincere, you know – most, if not all of the characters besides Lily and Gish, uh, cannot, cannot help John and Pearl. Like John and Pearl are in, are in like the most nightmarish childlike situation where, where they cannot rely on, on, on adults. They cannot rely right. on their own mother, you know, they're, they're completely alone and, uh, you know, up to their own survival, um, skills and, uh, that that's that's like frustrating when it comes to to other characters but with with birdie it's like you feel bad for him you know yeah it's more tragic yeah exactly like he fails them but it's all it's almost like this like ah oh, like it's not just that like oh shit john and pearl are 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 in danger it's like oh sh- fuck like nothing's going right like <laughs> None of like oh i i understand what this feels like you know kind of shit like like kind of it's kind of grounded you know yeah, and I think the the real crux of it also is that he is correct yeah. in that when he says they would blame it on me, yeah. if it's his word against the preachers, much yeah. like when John tells his mother that the preacher is asking about the money later on, yeah. the, it's the preacher's word against theirs. And yeah. because the preacher has the dressings of godliness, yeah. Yeah. they take the preacher's word. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't take the word of a of a drunk old man who who's like, you know, spends his time missing his dead wife, you know? Right. <laughs> right. That or the preacher who's like, Oh, I, why would I kill my wife? That's yeah, crazy. exactly. Yeah. Right. So he tells John that he, the, the stranger who just took up at the boarding house knew his dad from jail. And lo and behold, who should already be horning in on the family at spoons when John heads over, but the preacher. And he claims that he was employed by the jail, not a resident. And you have the boss, Icy Spoon, immediately being like, wow, what a good man this is. <laughs> yeah. Icy Spoon. John stares at the man's hands. They're tattooed with love and hate. So he regales them with the tale. H-A-T-E. It was with this hand that Brother Kane struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see these fingers, dear hearts. These fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch, and I'll show you the story of life. And he wrestles his hands together, and he says that even when it looks like hate is going to win, ultimately, love takes it down for the count. And it's just so fake. Like, it's just so rehearsed and and such bullshit, but it fools Icy Spoon. She's like, that rocks. I love, love, it's like... Again, it's like it's this it's it's the terror of being surrounded by people who are so impressionable and can just fall for these these motherfuckers, you know, like, yeah, they're so the those those char- characters in particular are so like easily impressionable and so like so naive, you know, because even even John's face he looks like John, the little boy can can kind of tell this guy's like no good. Like he can he tell impressed. this guy's kind of bullshitty, you know, but these like old ass people who are just like gazing with, you know, with glimmer in their eyes at this preacher who's just spouting this bullshit. 
it's like, oh no, I can't, we can't rely on these people. Like they're going to, they're going to fuck us up. Like we're going to die because of these idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Damn you spoons. Yeah. (laughs) You and your peach brandy. That's right. Honestly, Icy does feel like, I mean, she's not as villainous as the preacher, but it is close. She is so meddlesome. She's intent on setting preacher up. Mr. Powell with Willa. Yeah. I love her. It's what a performance. When she talks about how love is bullshit and Willa should be like me and just lie there thinking about canning while we have sex. (laughs) Like (laughs) the cut to her husband, like dropping the meat that he was eating. Yeah, it was great. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. What a character. Yeah. You know, for how scary the preacher is, like the preacher wouldn't have any power if it weren't for people like Icy Spoon. (laughs) You know yeah. what I mean? And she's she also is as as common as, as these other psychopaths. More so even, because you at least need to have some charisma to, to be the preacher guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also like it's it's like harrowing when you see uh Icy Spoon completely turn by the end of the movie. Like yes. people are so impressionable and so like malleable that they'll just they'll just put they'll pedestalize this person you know to the highest degree and then they'll be like hang him like beard. just like yeah a lot like having torches in their hands and literally <laughs> torches and axes <laughs> she has an axe in her hand at the end an old lady <laughs> it's like these i'm just as scared of them as they as i am for people like the preacher <laughs> yeah absolutely the preacher tells her and John that Ben tossed the money in the river, so she feels great. Uh, Willow, uh, Willa, he tells that. And, uh, oh, this guy isn't here thinking I know where the money is after all. But he's watching John, and John lets a telling little smile out. Bertie, however, tells John the skiff will be cocked up and ready within a week. Uh, after regaling us with a delightful song, this movie is like a secret musical. Pretty <laughs> yes. delightful. It's a very, it's a very delightful family musical, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's such a, it's such a, like a romp through, through sunshine and, and happiness. And then right. towards the end, it turns into a wholesome Christmas movie. <laughs> you know? There you go. It hits all, hits all the hallmarks. Yeah. Yeah. Literally hallmark. <laughs> huh? Holiday special. That's right. But as he, as John walks home, he sees his mother hugging Icy Spoon. They're seemingly both pleased as punch about something. And the way that these things, these machinations acting against you can feel out of your control is so painful. Yeah. And it is so clearly captured by the movie. Yeah. You know, John seeing everyone act in their or act against their own best interests Mm -hmm. and not be able to do anything about it is absolutely tragic. Yeah. That is such a common thing to do now, too. I think everyone just took that from Night of the Hunter. Like, like the idea of being, that's, I mean, that's such a horror movie trope too. Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't think of movies before 1955 from the perspective of children that have that same kind of thing. Like, I think that was like pretty ahead of its time. Like, but now, but just think of all the movies now that are just like, Oh, like nobody understands me. Like, this thing's gonna come for us and, and nobody gets sure. it, you know? Like Skinner Rink. Where's the special thanks yeah. to Night of the Hunter in the credits? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skinner Rink and Night of the Hunter. What a double feature. That's right. That's exactly right. Where we started, where we where we ended up. Yep. And when John gets home, the other shoe drops, 
Powell is already in the house. That's the preacher, by the way, Powell. Uh, metaphorically and literally already in the house. He's going to be a daddy to John and Pearl. And John says, you'll never be my dad. <laughs> you'll never be my dad. <laughs> yeah. You tell him. Yeah, exactly. And in the heat of things, he does reveal that he's got a secret. And there's only one secret that he could have to the delight of Powell. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is stoked, though. Even when mom finds the switchblade in his pocket, she just goes, oh, man. man. <laughs> <it back> <laughs> He then makes her feel like shit when she is like a little flirty on their wedding night. Yeah. The inversion is so great where he reaches out and she thinks it's to her. And then he just asks her to close the window. Yeah. Yeah. That whole, that whole scene is so fucking good. Yeah. He's, I'm not going to paw at you in that abominable way. Yeah, man. You think he's going to kill her. Like you you think he's going to do something. And, and he just like, he unfolds this like new layer of crazy onto us you know it's pretty it's scary i i love that scene i just i have <laughs> my husband and i have a poster of the night of the hunter in our in our bedroom and it was given to us as a wedding gift from one of our comic friends and on the poster it shows like shelly winters kind of like pining at at robert mitchum's leg and the and the 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 caption is like Last night I made you my wife, and now you expect me to hold you, to kiss you. <laughs> like, it's, like, what a great wedding gift, you know? Yeah, that's you so know, funny. just hangs over oh, our, next to our bed. <laughs> it's just that's gonna be there forever. <laughs> hell yeah, hell yeah! The way that this hits Shelly Winters like a ton of bricks. Yeah, you, your heart just goes out to her. You know, she prays to God to make her clean so that she can be what he wants. Yeah, you yeah. Know, good right. Lord, it puts you on such unstable ground because yeah. you do think that he like is gonna be aggressive with her, and it, it, he wants nothing to do with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His like commanding, booming voice and stuff vibrates to your core. Definitely, and you see how like like sad Shelley Winters looks in that scene. Her eye bags are just like trenches of shadow, like under sure. her eyes. I mean, she just opened herself back up. Exactly. After the brutal death of her previous husband. Exactly. Yeah. She's just, she just cannot catch a break. Yeah. She like, I think, I think her performance like speaks a lot without having to say a lot of words. And then she just, she just has those eye bags for the rest of the movie. She just looks yeah. so fucking tired. <laughs> she absolutely does. The next day, John is with Birdie again, fishing for the meanest, orneriest, sneakinest critter in the river, the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Southern. Birdie also shares his misgivings about the preacher. If you're in trouble, just come running for Uncle Birdie, he tells John. Meanwhile, Willa is testifying to the community about how she drove Ben to murder because she wanted nice things. Mm-hmm. And there are torches ablaze and the murmur of the crowd grows in sweaty ascent at her manic fervor about how great it was that God stepped in to have Ben throw the money in the river. Mm-hmm. Just fucking terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> like, she's like crazy in that scene. Yeah. That's the kind of scene where I thought it was like she was pretty extra when I first watched those movies, but... Now it's like, I, I I get it. Like, I think it makes sense, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially so, desperation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and I love how she's like, you know, in, in the previous scene, scene, she's in a nightgown, you know, ready to, you know, 
celebrate her honeymoon with her husband. Uh, and then in the next scene, she's like covered in like a sweater. <laughs> she, yeah. She's like covered head to toe. <laughs> looks tired and cold and weak and frail (laughs) while she's like convulsing with let's swing that pendulum the other way she said yeah yeah totally this then cuts to us finally seeing where the money is for real which is tucked away in the doll of pearl who is so innocent that she is cutting some up to make paper dolls out Mm -hmm. yeah john shoves the money back into the doll just as powell comes out i love this shot so much this awesome choice to do it in one take, to mm-hmm. boost the tension. Yeah. You're like, shit, is he going to get it all in there in time? Yeah, yeah. If you're constantly cutting, time becomes fake, even more fake than it actually is in those moments. Yeah. And so to have it locked down there in one of those great wide shots and have John frantically stuffing the money into the doll yeah. becomes so much more real, so much more tense to have it all happen in front of you. Yeah, without without music, too. All you hear is is Robert Mitchum in the distance and the rifling of money. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. The preacher stops John on his way in. He says, it's fucked up. You told your mom that I asked about the money. And I love John's little laugh here. He's so pleased with himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so, so sincere. <laughs> actor. Uh, but Powell is unconcerned. It's me, your mother believes, he says. And he continues to weasel his way in. Pearl loves this guy. Uh, yeah, as we said, you're just fooling. My name's Pearl. <laughs> and Pearl is literally calling him daddy when John throws a hairbrush at him. Uh, it seems like Pearl might have told, but John didn't even give her a chance before he's like, you swore, Pearl. You swore you'd never tell. You know what? You're right. I think in my mind, though, I'd love to think that they have they have such a good relationship that that Pearl is like more loyal than you think she is. That's true. Like I mean, she, she never he, says, she never tells later until he's in danger. So yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. Like it's just that she's under the spell of of, of Harry Powell, not that she's you know she's an idiot. Right. Uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> John's bad. He tells Pearl, and Pearl agrees. He is trying to turn them against each other, but he can't hold his anger back. Like I like I said, you know, this gluttonous emotion that he has. He threatens her, and so she flees without revealing the truth. And Willa hears all this. She was listening from outside. Incredible, incredible shot composition in the bedroom that night as they mm-hmm. talk. Yeah. Looks like a chapel right there. Mm-hmm. And she figures it all out. Mm-hmm. The children know where it is, specifically not in the river. And he, Robert Mitchum, half in light, half in shadow, thematic to be sure. He reaches up to God. Willa is talking. Their two themes mingle in the score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just so powerful and evocative and emotional. Yeah. It's really remarkable. It's it's it, no no surprise that this movie has stood the test of time when you have shots like this. Yeah. Just casually tossed in. Yeah. Man, there's so much to talk about with that with that scene. Another another like wide shot. It's very stage like, you know, like a theater sensibility where there's kind of two things happening at once. Like you want to, you want to listen to what Will is saying at the same time, you kind of have to follow the preacher's movements happening concurrently while he's like, he goes, he walks to the window and like reaches up to God and, you know, starts hearing him telling him to kill her and stuff. It's so influential. You can just tell how, how influential that scene was by itself. I'm sure like Ari Aster saw Night of the Hunter, like, you know, early in his career, the, the lighting too, I watched a video with uh, Stanley Cortez, the the cinematographer, and 
he described that scene as this practice of of craft because he says that he he could have used as many lights as he wanted to frame this scene, but instead he chose to use four. So he so he purposefully restricted his resources in order to achieve a certain a certain artistic goal, right? Which is something that I follow that as much as I can in my personal in my life, like in my work. I think I think restriction and and limited resources in terms of whatever that means in terms of time, in terms of materials, in terms of whatever. I totally love that that kind of process with with people, and so I I resonate with Stanley Cortez very much. Because that shot couldn't have been achieved in any other way. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm saying that a lot, but... Well, you're right. The decisions made in these movies, they were so purposeful. Everyone kind of knew what they had to do in order to, right. to, to, to achieve these things. I also think that that comes from an intense level of trust between the crew. Yeah. Because, yeah. because Lawton, it's his first movie. Yeah. He's an actor, not a director, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, he's an incredible director, but as far as far as he's concerned, this is is not something that he's experienced with. And so being willing to work with Cortez and honor his decisions yeah, to yeah. to use those those limited resources, yeah, totally. I think is such a, a sign of respect for Cortez's work, yeah, and and something that is crucial to to working effectively with people. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. It was really, it's really cool hearing how much of Stanley Cortez's participation in, in this, because it's it's like, obviously, when you watch the movie, that the cinematography is is so key. But to hear Stanley Cortez put all so much of his, his philosophy into it is like, it's so inspiring. And, and it makes it makes the film so much more evocative. He mentions how he lights the way he constructs lights on set. To, in order to achieve a certain visual is through music. So he thinks, I, I, I guess, I don't, I don't know for sure, but he either thinks or listens to music in order to understand how, how light has to work. And I could cry. That's so beautiful to me. Like that's such yeah. a cool fucking, that's such a beautiful melding of crafts. And so hope I'm getting this right. But basically like the piece that Stanley was listening to while he was constructing the lights for that scene made its way into the score for the wow. movie. It's like a waltz. It's like this waltzy piece. And the waltz was kind of adjusted to be a little more discordant. It's another one of those examples of like this nightmarish thing is happening before your eyes. You don't know what's going on. It's tense. You're afraid for these people. You're scared of this other guy. And yet this music is this kind of like, like just very like kind of whimsy kind of, in and out of sleep and dream it's beautiful but it's like kind of off it's it's like so they could have just done horror movie music you know if they wanted to but it's this like decision they made and again it couldn't have been done any other way it had to yeah. be done that way you know really remarkable and willa so generous of spirit that she refuses to sort of acknowledge what's happening yeah she says <laughs> I know you're not here for the money that continues to taint us, but to show me the light, the Lord wouldn't let it be otherwise. And that's where even more of the terror comes in because what if a higher power was apathetic or even worse, malicious working with the preacher to sacrifice widows as long as the crimes are done in his name and the gospel is spread. Her willingness to believe that God wouldn't let this happen yeah. is frightening. Yeah. She's still kind of like under some kind of spell at that point. 
Right. Like she's kind of like beyond getting her back. Like, I, like right. at that she point, can't be rescued were, at that point. Yeah, 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 totally. And she's peaceful even as he unveils the knife. She closes her eyes as he holds it above her, and there's a wipe dissolve that imitates the slash of the knife as mm. we cut to John and Pearl. Mm. Really amazing, visceral cinematography the whole way through this scene in particular. And we've seen from his burlesque scene earlier that his erotic and violent urges have their wires crossed, which ties into his, I think, interestingly, into his right-handedness, and he commits this violent act with his love hand. Mm. The one mm. that has love written on it is the mm. one he uses to commit these violent deeds. Mm. So Interesting. John and Pearl wake up to hear Powell driving away in the eerie fog, but can't do anything to stop it. The deed is done already. And Powell tells everyone that she ran away in the night, possessed by Satan. He did have his suspicions, though. After all, she wouldn't even sleep with him on her honeymoon <laughs> night. Yeah. Uh, you rascal. Robert Mitchum. <laughs> well, I guess I'll stay here and raise these kids, he says. She won't be back. I reckon I can feel safe in promising you that, he tells the spoons. But the devil wins sometimes. And then the spoons, again, like, they're just like, oh, yeah, totally. Willis, she was bad news <laughs> all along. Yeah, you know, fuck her, you know. Just, right. like, so fucking impressionable. <laughs> yeah, easy to manipulate, for sure. This is when we see where she actually is, as Uncle Bertie fishes, in the car, at the bottom of the river itself. Another one of these incredibly eerie wide shots of the serene wreck. This was shot in a tank with the life mask made by the effects man for Citizen Kane, the guy who did the aging makeup for that. Mm. Not only so effective from just like an eerie asynchronous sound melding that we yeah. talked about before, but to at this time show the wound yeah. instead of obscuring it and for it to not be focused upon in any meaningful way, but just part of the scene where you have to sort of realize what it is. Yeah. You see this huge gash. God, it is just so incredible. Yeah. I wonder how they could have let that slide with the production code. Like maybe they just convinced them that that was like a shadow or, yeah. or like a mistake in the, in the prosthetics or something. Cause right. The line. Yeah. Where the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With the mannequin head. Yeah. I don't know how they did it, but like, <sighs> I get so worked up with like production code stuff because if you look at like the amount that people tried to get away with back then, it just goes to show how sensible people were. I guess there's like plenty of evidence of people being being sensible, you know, to to art in the you know pre pre code, but just like the filmmakers, the amount of resolve that they had to have in order to to achieve you know what they wanted, yeah, it proves because this movie is so fucking influential. If it was censored it probably wouldn't have been as impactful. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I could, That's like a whole other tangent. Like, I get so fucking mad about production code stuff. Well, I'm sure, especially as someone who works in comics yourself, that the comics had their own production code. And so, yeah. it's, it's, you know, when you learn about like EC Comics and what they had to go through to get these incredibly influential horror comics out and everything, mm. and how it wound up basically sinking the company. Yeah. It's easy to get worked up, I feel like, because it, actively harmed the art and the artists and the community and culture yeah yeah but but like people still do it like it's <laughs> especially especially in hollywood like it's proven that like people were capable of consuming heavy dark themes at the time like the the fact that like some like it hot that movie was a hit when it came out while the production code was enforced people could handle it you know they could have all they always could have handled it 
I try right. to give I try to give people more more credit where I, I want to you know see see the better potential in in, in audiences. <laughs> but that but but studios they still do it like they still they still don't think audiences can handle it, even after the production code you know like right. Lonnie and I we just watched The Exorcist three for the first time. Mm, so good. It's so good. Oh my god, it's so good. But but we I read that the last the ending. Like, you know, the ending is what it is. It's a lot. It's very normal. But, you know, that was, but that was, that was a fucking studio thing. Like, you know, for how much trust you can put in someone like William Peter Blatty or, or Charles Lawton or whatever, like any of these, any, any amazing filmmaker, you can put all your trust in it and into them. And yet you hire them for that reason. You hire them because you know how good they are. And yet you, you still, I don't know, like endless endless rage endless rage and, and it's like you can you can you can pinpoint it in any classic i'm sure you know night yeah. of the hunter is not the the only one because because that movie was very censored yeah fortunately but you know it turned out it turned out okay yeah exactly uh, and and i'm in complete agreement with you but this is followed by another incredible shot of the preacher casually leaning against the tree outside and singing before slowly heading into the house calling for the children Again, that feeling of him just circling them like a vulture. Mm-hmm. We also get this great iris effect on the children in the basement window. Another callback to silent film here. Mm-hmm. John tells Pearl they got to run away that night. Daddy Powell won't be taking care of them. <laughs> this is when Bertie retreats to his bottle. He says they'll think it was me. A slit in her throat like an extra mouth. I did grin while reading the sickness at the doctor describing a wound as a smile on her neck. Oh. Which I <laughs> might have been. A little little reference, possibly. Yeah, there's a few there's a few references. Night of the Hunter, direct plagiarism. You know, I'm guilty of that. <laughs> homage, 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 right, right, homage. <laughs> Powell attempts to strong on Pearl with no supper and threatening John with the knife that he shows them, but when she refuses again, he loses her temper with her and she starts to cry again, realigning her with John. He steps in to try and stop this. It's not fair to make her tell when she swore she wouldn't, so I'll tell. It's in the cellar and his little voice squeak when he says, I'm not lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sincere. It reminds me of uh, in the Simpsons, the squeaky voice teen. He's like, if I had money in the cellar, oh. she'd be so bad right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Powell forces them in ahead of him, though. A lot going on here because, first of all, they built this basement a little smaller than usual to highlight Mitchum's size and put us in that childlike perspective again as he looms. But also, again, the childlike storytelling where we're like, oh, perfect. He's They're going to send him into the basement. And then, of course, mm. why wouldn't he make them go in ahead of him? Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. Why wouldn't he do that? Yeah. But when, when John is like, oh, fuck, he figured us yeah. out. Like, he's going to make us go in. <laughs> you're yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you as the audience, you're like, oh, yeah, they're going to lock him in. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) The money clearly isn't there because the floor is concrete. Pearl sells his ass out again. John did a sin. John told a lie. Yeah, and I love Robert Mitchum's face when he turns back and he's like, this is concrete. Like, he's like, that's like the most shocking thing that's ever happened to him. Yeah. Can't believe John lied to him. (laughs) Yeah. So Powell grabs him and he says, a liar is an abomination in mine eyes. So I'm going to slit your throat too, unless you tell. And while John holds fast, Pearl does break and tell. And they manage to escape up the stairs. And they do lock him in the cellar after dropping a loose shelf of jarred goods on his noggin. 
And to Uncle Birdie's we go while he slams against the door. And I love that we linger long enough to hear it break down. It's just this mm, outside mm. shot of the house, but they yeah. let you hang out. Yeah, that lasts for a good while, too. Yeah. And it's not a long movie. So for them yeah. to be like, this is important to linger here, yeah. I think that they're right. Yeah, I, I have to quickly mention the part where Robert Mitchum is chasing them up the stairs. I distinctly remember watching, it was a video where people, a bunch of fil- film people were just talking about Night of the Hunter. And a lot of them kept mentioning that shot of Robert Mitchum chasing them up the stairs where his hands are like outstretched trying to get mm-hmm. them. And it was just like all of these kind of old dudes just like talking about how scary that is. <laughs> like it's just so <laughs> it's just such an innocent, even like an old any any like you know, guy, adult person is like scared of someone reaching up to to get them. It's like such yeah. a shot of just like the monster outstretching trying to get the get the innocent children, you know? Yeah, very Frankenstein-esque. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, it's just like kind of nightmarish. You see how big robert mitchum is like that's just just so weird like i don't know mm-hmm. there's something about it maybe for how quick it is it's like it's like it doesn't linger so it just kind of yeah. is like an impression in your head i don't know it's 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 scary it really is mm-hmm. uncle birdie has finished his bottle though and he drunkenly mumbles then goes back to sleep as john and pearl plead for help there's still the river john says the only place that they can turn to really amazing shot of them running along the banks i mm-hmm. just love it mm-hmm. yeah no time to lose, too, as we hear a sharp children and the shadow of Powell crests the hill. He pursues them, fighting through the bushes and branches and muck, missing them by inches and screaming in impotent rage as John pushes off the riverbank. This scream is inhuman. It is yeah. wild. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like an animal, you know, like, a, like a, a dying rabbit or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it's creepy. Of course, the skiff was under a willow tree. Which was their mother's name, notable that they've been forced out from her protection by this darkness that Powell embodies. And it is this incredible scene as they float down the river. It becomes almost fantastical while still being entirely naturalistic. This is something that A.G. talked about enjoying in his criticism work, so it's not really a surprise to see it here. But the late night, the animals and sparkling cobwebs, the mournful song by Pearl and the warped scale, it's so ethereal. Yeah, really, just powerful, impactful stuff. Yeah, I feel like the, it's a it's a deliberate turn where we're just in the perspective of the kids, and and it and it really does turn into like a storybook almost. Yeah, it really does. Really funny moment in the commentary where they mentioned that the rabbit was actually the same rabbit that they put in twice. Yeah. And one of them goes, "I hope he got double residuals." Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They've been cruising down the river for a week when the spoons get a postcard from Powell claiming that he took the kids to his sister's farm. Oh yeah, this great farm upstate where they have plenty of room to run around and get many interesting smells and they're fine, but you can never visit. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) But it turns out Powell knifed a man for his horse and is in pursuit. The children are making do on the kindness of strangers, although we see they're not the only hungry kids on the road. One woman who gives them a potato straight up says, oh, go away. Mm -hmm. She can't take the pain of seeing these parentless kids who need help. Yeah. Yeah, that that harkens to what Ben Harper, John's dad, says in the beginning, where he's like, I'm sick of I I can't stand the sight of hungry children. Like, I'm sick of it. Yeah, he's like enraged by it. It's like a personal slight to him or something. Right. He was right. Like, you know, he was right. He, He wasn't lying, you know. 
it is a it is a it, it is a reality <laughs> and it's and it was a, an actual reality yeah for people watching the fucking movie Powell is preaching on the road about the dangers of impudent children, but they keep floating by in this expressionistic river sequence. Really tough scene where they land for a moment and we hear this like kindly comforting voice singing a song. There's a light on and a nice little bird silhouette in the window of the house. Mm -hmm. But they've been so traumatized by friendly faces with poison smiles that they can't even approach this house. Mm -hmm. They they just go to the barn and steal some some sleep. Yeah, because they can't bring themselves to trust an adult again. Yeah, they've been let down too many times. Yeah, you empathize with the kind of child brain of that where they're coming from. You know, yeah, children. Like I don't know about you, I was I was an extremely shy kid, and like I didn't trust anybody. You know, right? Like I I didn't like it. I didn't like uh, interacting with adults or anything like that. So like that's what I would. That's what I would do if I was in their shoes. Sure, very understandable. It's like that whole scene is like they're traversing the Southern American landscape in such a, like a fairy tale way. I, I kind of feel like this movie is like a, an interesting, like modern fairy tale or, or modern American mythology of, of like the American South. Yeah. Filtered through that Gothic lens. It's, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah. 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 It takes on, it takes on these like beats and these motifs of, of like, you know, just the like fantastical having to having to traverse a, a fantastical land and and it's the american south you know right <laughs> john watches the moon as some dogs wake him up they're barking because over the hill approaches the preacher still singing strongly don't he never sleep asked john it's an amazing amazing shot as the silhouette moves slowly across the horizon the slow pace somehow more terrifying mm-hmm. it follows took this lesson very very well yeah 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 yeah, that that whole that whole scene was shot on a stage too, right? And I think people people love to point out that the the person on the horse in the distance is actually a a little person on a miniature horse. Incredible! In order to create that <laughs> sense of distance, <laughs> and it's like, hey, resourcefulness, you know? <laughs> like, That's right. That's exactly you what you were talking about before. Yeah, yeah you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> That's right, and job creation. There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> So back in the boat they go, the moon and the currents leading them further downriver as they eventually fall asleep while drifting. Amazing shots as the camera pans up to the magically star-studded night sky, which then becomes like a beautiful sky poking out from behind a cloud that is so pleasant looking that it could be used on like a trite motivational poster or as a representation of God, basically. Yeah, Um, yeah, that's true. Sort of maybe God is watching over them a little bit. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) God's country. But they're awoken by an authoritative voice demanding that they leave the boat and get up to her house this instant. John springs up and grabs the oar for defense. And this woman that they don't know is like, I will kick your ass. Off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classic Southern mom. Don't you hurt her, uh, John says about Pearl. And this woman retorts, hurt her more like wash her. <laughs> Fucking got her ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. Can't respond to that. <laughs> Can't argue with that. That's right. And there are three other youngsters that she's looking after, too, who all leap to do her bidding. Yes, Miss Cooper. And they're washed up and put to work. We learn that these other children also aren't her natural children, but she helps to look after them, even for those who do still have a parent, but need that community support. She calls herself a strong tree with many branches. Yeah. And I mean, it is it's a really powerful thing you know, when you see the the mother come over to talk to one of them and and you're like. It can't be easy, 
to have to reckon with your own situation and understand that you can't properly take care of someone else Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to have that community support where she's at least able to still visit her and see her and be part of her life is so huge. Yeah. And, and it's such a, a sort of subtle part of this movie but I think it is so important as well. Yeah, because that's like total contrast with the town, the first town that they were living in. There's there's like no community in that town. Only the facsimile of it at the picnic and stuff. But even but even at the picnic, it's like of all the shots where there's other people, none of them speak except Icy Spoon. Mm-hmm. She only talks and they all just like statuesque, just stare at her. You know, it's it's weird. It's eerie. It's like it's almost yeah. like these people aren't real, you know? It's like a nightmare land. And then, and then, like you said, yeah, yeah. You immediately kind of trust this new environment with, they actually give a shit about community and stuff. Right. And she tells the story of Moses as a bedtime story. Again, thematic to have a helpless baby floating along a river. And were it not for the kindness of those who found him, never become a king of men, never help to free the Jews, never help to spread the word of God. Left alone with John, she gets him to open up a little bit to reveal that he does want to be comforted by her story, to feel like it's actually two children that were found and brought back from the brink uh, in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see the cracks in his strength that he had to find from when his father was taken. Yeah. From that moment, that's like the first bit of self-doubt and like looking to be comforted that he's shown. Yeah. You know – if you ever want to feel comforted, just adjust the Bible story to fit your situation. <laughs> that always that just, that always works for people. I think you know. I think we can yeah. all take away from that. Just like just kind of tweak it a bit and and make it right. <laughs> One of the children, Ruby, goes to town. Someone call Cake, Ruby. Don't take your love to town. But the boy she was going to meet gets stepped in front of by Powell, who wants to talk to her. And for the cost of an ice cream and calling her pretty, Ruby tells Powell all about John and Pearl. She tries to flirt some more when he springs for the door at the news of the doll being there, and we hear the knife snap open. Luckily, Ruby is saved by the jealous younger boy who accuses her of being a girl about town, and she is, you know, fucked up about all of, like, about having sold these kids out. She returns home, she confesses it all to Mrs. Cooper who is understanding. She says, you were looking for love in the only foolish way you knew how. Mm -hmm. This isn't her daughter, her natural daughter, so understandable why there might be some abandonment feelings Mm -hmm. and looking for some kind of connection. Yeah. You know, I don't think that it's unreasonable for Ruby to feel this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, yeah. You'll always be my little whore. (laughs) You may be a street hooker, but, you know, I'll I'll still love you. That's right. That's that's it's weird that they got away with that line. Yeah, totally. 50s, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it's tough out here for kids who have to grow up quick. And she says, we all need love, Ruby. And now aware of Powell, she wonders why he hasn't been to the house. Mm. He does arrive the next morning, though. And it's funny when Ruby drops the eggs at seeing him after we heard the previous day that she is a notorious egg dropper. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> the details, you know. Yeah, there's always more. There's always more. I I mean, I watched it three times in preparation, once with the commentary, once for notes, and then once just like a vibe watch. And every single time I got new stuff out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know, I know I've seen, I've seen this movie so many times somehow I I never got that. (laughs) I can't, (laughs) that makes me happy to watch it again to see what else I catch. (laughs) Hell yeah. 
He tells Miss Cooper that he's been searching for them, the only word of truth in the pack of lies he spews to her. My favorite moment, though, is when he calls Parkersburg and Cincinnati the Sodoms of the Ohio River. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she sees right through him, though. She's not falling for the old brother left hand and brother right hand routine. One of my favorite little moments in this is how excited he gets to tell it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, you were looking at my hands? Yeah. Oh, well, I guess I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> she was like looking the completely other direction. <laughs> John says he's not their dad, and Miss Cooper says he ain't no preacher, neither. Not a true man of God, as far as she's concerned. And he whips out the knife and goes for John and the doll, but Miss Cooper is pretty quick, too, and she grabs a gun. Not she grabs a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> bigger than her. <laughs> That's right. And he says, you haven't heard the last of Harry Powell yet, you devils, you whores of Babylon. I'll be back when it's dark. Ooh. Jumps on his horse like, like Robert Mitchum knows how to do. And so he is back at dark, singing his old gospel tune outside their fence while Ms. Powell sits silently in the shadows, gun at the ready, steadfast protector. She actually does eventually join in, but it feels much more honest from her, like she's actually getting strength from the positive religious teachings that brought her to look after the meek. She also specifically is singing the counterpart of this hymn, and also specifically mentions Jesus in her part, which, as I said, Part of their willingness to to make him more evil is that mm -hmm. he doesn't mention mm -hmm. Jesus. So mm -hmm. pretty well established mm -hmm. as this like battle between good and evil. Here. Mm -hmm. At Ms. Cooper's command, though, Ruby brings the other children down. And when she does, we see an owl watching a nearby rabbit. Then we hear the pained squeaking of the circle of life. It's a hard world for little things, Ms. Cooper says. And she tells them the story of Herod killing all the babies. It took a mother risking her own safety to ensure the safety of Jesus, though. And who should arrive at the door then but Herod? Mm -hmm. I mean, Powell. <laughs> she does shoot at him, and he hoots and hollers all the way to the barn. <laughs> Literally hoots and hollers. <laughs> Fucking incredible. <laughs> so, so funny. <laughs> she rings the police, and she says, I got something trapped in my barn. And they stay there all night, the whole group. Ms. Cooper tells John that the children have the most endurance of all, that their man at his strongest. They abide. Mm -hmm. Finally, the state troopers arrive. They take Powell in for the murder of the women. But seeing them take him down again reminds John of his real father, especially with the deliberate recreation of the choreography. And he breaks down. He says, don't. Here's the money. It's too much. I can't deal with this anymore. He even says dad because he is literally in the moment flashing back basically to yeah. his own father's capture yeah and and it shows it was like never about the money it was more a burden than anything like you know yeah. the people living in this era are are victims of of this failed system and and not even the money you know the money is it'll it'll both destroy you and and like you know give you the the illusion of of save of savior too mm -hmm. john refuses to cooperate with the prosecution he's done but he is now fully part of Miss Cooper's family. And the Spoons lead this lynch mob outcry against the 25-wifed Bluebeard. <laughs> Bluebeard! Yeah. Also, maybe this is just a character choice, and she's, uh, you know, really feeling it. But it also seemed like maybe the character Icy Spoon was a little drunk, which was something that she had lambasted her husband for earlier oh. for taking a sip of brandy. Interesting. So just another sign of hypocrisy, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I, I assumed she was like, because I know, I know what you mean. 
she kind of the way she kind of yells is like she's almost like kind of out of it yeah yeah i always assumed that was just because she's such a fucking pearl clutch and lunatic that she's just sure. overcome by <laughs> by injustice but yeah maybe you're right huh interesting could be put my tinfoil hat on for that yeah. one also not the only pearl clutching lunatic in this oh <laughs> there you go that's where that's where the phrase came from must be must yeah. be Cooper and the kids run out the back while the mob goes wild. They, like we said, they have literal axes and torches ready as the cops take Powell into the car for jail, then hanging. We also see that Ruby is carrying a less literal torch for Powell still. Tough to see past that charisma. Uh-huh. Now it's Christmas time. Oh, I also forgot to mention that. The, yeah, the hangman is like, oh, I can't wait. It'll be an oh honor God, to do that, this guy. That part's so fucking funny. I love it's just like. They're pushing him into a cop car, and the music is like, it's like Miracle on 42nd Street. And then the guy's just like, huge smile on his face. He like tips his head. He's like, can't wait to hang this man. (laughs) I'll see you at the gallows. (laughs) Just like so happy. The minds can wait. (laughs) Now it's Christmas time. The cleansing snow blanketing the world. A lot of the musical themes reappear in some version or another here. Without the devilish preacher's theme, the the notes of his theme are here, but it's like a more gentle version, which mm-hmm. is really fascinating. Yeah. And the kids all got slash made Ms. Powell gifts. So funny that she got a single potholder three times For everybody. <laughs> so weird. So weird. Things have been crazy for John, obviously, so he didn't get her anything. And he looks like a fool because Pearl got in on one of these potholders. <laughs> She was like, that's from both of us, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pearl just reveals that she's like a mastermind of undermining John's, John's caringness. That's right. She, she just snuck her name onto the card. Yeah. But he's so eager to demonstrate his appreciation of Miss Cooper that he goes and gets her an apple and he wraps it nicely in a doily. And she's stoked. This is the richest gift a body could have. Not the apple but the demonstration of affection. Mm-hmm. And she returns it in kind. She tosses the apple over her portfolio. Yeah, she says, this is a metaphor. This yeah, apple right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the metaphor, asshole. <laughs> Lord, save little children. My soul is humbled when I see the way little ones accept their lot. The dude abides and so do children. John is so excited about his watch. She is pleased as punch to be able to offer that to him. It's just such a pleasant ending. It does hit that fairy tale part yeah. where you're talking about like it is this nightmare, but you come out the other side. Yeah, it's like Mother right? Goose almost, you know, like, exactly. like Brothers Grimm, some shit like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the 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 real the I mean the story, you know, it's about family, George. You're so right. Much like Fast and the Furious. <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> all we need is the joy of Christmas to to mm-hmm. melt our psychopath stalkers away. That's what it's all about. It sucks as a Jewish person that I don't get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about me? I'll never melt my stalkers away. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I get eight eight chances at melting a stalker away, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great movie. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Jenna, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Uh, because I said so. Boom. Okay, bye. <laughs> Mike, drop. Oh, no, I have a better answer. Uh, because okay. Guillermo del Toro said so. 
You're going to argue with Guillermo del Toro? Bye. Exactly. I don't think so. I don't think so. He did an interview with the guy from Mythbusters. Like, how are you going to argue with that? The guy can't from be done. Mythbusters, you know? Um, <laughs> he busted myths. And the myth exactly. was. Exactly. The myth that this was not the best. Not, and he said, yeah, exactly. busted. That's why Criterion hired him to interview Guillermo del Toro for some reason. <laughs> why is Night of the Hunter the best horror movie ever made? That's a good question. I think the fears that that movie touches upon are very universal. I think they're realistic. It it grounds you in a realistic time period where bad things did happen. It grounds the ideology of a evil person in a way that's familiar to other real life evil people bent on this diabolical cause in their head that cannot be reasoned with. All the while wrapped in this childlike perspective that we also all cannot deny that we can empathize we can we can relate to in some degree you know we we were all children at some point we all to some extent have certain chemicals in our brain that elicits fear in in a childlike way i think the marriage of dark adult visual themes themes in general the marriage between that and the perspective of children is kind of foolproof in how to really create a truly nightmarish story. I think to the the cinematography, I'm, I'm realizing now, now that I've been watching it more, I think the discordant cinematography, I, I guess discord, I don't know if discordant would be the right word, but with the opening credits of Psycho, you see the words on the screen and they start to kind of fragment and fracture and piece together. Right, under the weight. But arrhythmic to the score which is just as kind of discordant and and fractured, like Bernard Herrmann's theme. And that in and of itself, this kind of lack of harmony between these two parts of your brain, mm-hmm. audio and, and visual, the dissonance off the bat creates this like sense of dread or fear or, or like just discomfort, you know? Likewise, I think, I think Night of the Hunter does the same thing. I, I think the mix of soft, Music and harsh contrast visuals creates this dissonance in your brain that you cannot put these things together and you're uncomfortable. When I read about interviews of how this movie affects them, people say like, oh, you know, Robert Mitchum's presence is so scary or the framing itself, the the composition of the shot itself is scary or Shelley Winters' dead body is so scary or the the monstrous body posturing of, of Robert Mitchum as he's trying to kill the kids, is so scary. I think certain things in the movie hit, they just like tickle people in different ways, like in their own kind of personal way. And I think I think all of all of the things that that people find scary about this movie have a wraparound element of of that discordance and that and that that fragmentation of of senses. At least that's how that's you know, that's kind of what's why I find it scary. I don't know how related this is, but Personally, I find the idea of being stalked by someone, the idea of being pursued is something that has scared me my whole life, especially for how it relates visually. Like we talked about, if it's a wide shot and you see like a figure in the distance, how, how scary that is um, because of how real it feels. I'm wondering too, if, if Night of the Hunter, the idea of being pursued, 
this might be getting to this. Might, I, I think I might be reaching here, but I'm just kind of like thinking out loud right now. You kind of, cause you kind of, you know who Harry Powell is. You, you've had this like intimate moment with him in the beginning. So you kind of feel like you should be familiar with him. And yet when you see him in the distance, indiscernible, purely silhouette, mm. it kind of stripped down version of him. It feels just terrifying as if you don't know him. Yeah. As if you didn't have those intimate moments with him. Like, why is that? Maybe maybe there's some kind of fracturing there. There is a fracturing of how we think we understand someone, how they present themselves, how they look up close versus how they look from a distance. The distortion of the environment they're in. We see Harry Powell in nice, beautiful sunshine. We see him in these dark, horrifying, contrasty, unnatural spaces. Constant kind of like back and forth fracturing dissonance stuff like that i don't know if that made any sense you know then hallelujah but at least that's i think that's that's kind of what i what i find scary so hopefully hopefully you know the idea this kind of philosophy around a uncanny primal fear of of dissonance in our world hopefully that that you know that makes sense that translates to makes perfect sense and i couldn't agree more i think that it fully accomplishes that to me this is the best horror movie ever made because we already mentioned guillermo del toro but Throw Pauline Kale on that list. Mm. The GOAT, in my opinion, mm. best film critic of all time. Mm. She called it one of the most frightening movies ever made. So that's a damn good start. Okay. It also has, as you touched on, this incredible dreamlike quality that so effectively brings you back to childhood. This Jungian father figure chasing you. Nobody believing the kids. It so perfectly distills the terror of being young in an uncaring and isolating world. Mm-hmm. And that is something that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the 50s until today, there are parents who don't do a good job of taking care of their kids and kids who feel isolated and uncared for. And this does such a great job of putting that on screen in this fusion of realism and expressionism. Mm-hmm. And it works so well to demonstrate the repressed sexuality and religious hypocrisy. These two things that have to oxymoronically fit in your mind, paradoxically, they have to both be true to you in order to be like Harry, Mm -hmm. in order to be like the preacher. Mm -hmm. And it's so incredibly visually striking. You know, we talked about the cinematography the whole way through, but- You see these incredible images drawn by Grubb himself and the art director Hilliard Brown, Mm. and they're just, for real, translated to screen. These incredible striking images are put on screen in all of their ethereality. And for Charles Lawton to nail it so hard that his one movie has basically completely superseded his reputation as an actor is Mm. incredible. Yeah, It is such a dynamic movie. It is so active. The feeling of pursuit and chase drives this movie so hard. And it's just really satisfying. And I'm glad that it has that happy ending. Like, I want these kids (laughs) to be safe. Yeah. It also, this is a little less relevant, but it also falls into that niche post-Halloween approaching Christmas setting. Tough to find movies to represent that time of year. This nails it. So put this and Nightmare Before Christmas in a box and you got the two <laughs> movies that do it. <laughs> it just it, these things all come together in such a fascinating way. 
for me to, for me to have not even mentioned the performances in that sum up is mm. absurd because they're fucking incredible across yeah. the board. That's how good they are. Yeah. These child actors do a fucking incredible job going toe to toe with Bob Mitchum. Holy shit. That's very noteworthy that that child actors in the 1950s can carry a movie. You know, that's that, yeah. that was a triumph. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is why, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made. Oh, well, I'm so glad you think that way. You know, finally, finally. Uh, We're getting the word out. Said. We're getting the word out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jenna, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Please tell oh. people where they can find your work, where oh. they can read the sickness. Oh, Go to you. your local comic book shop. Tell them you want it. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, I was like intimidated once I I saw the roster of of people on this podcast, and it scared the shit out of me because I was like, <laughs> "Damn, you've got you've got some real fucking cool people on this show," and so I have to. I know I have to really bring it to do good on on this, you know, this house of glory that that you've invited me <laughs> in. Uh, and I'm and I'm very thankful and appreciative for you to have me on. My pleasure. Ha- happy. So happy to be here just just to talk about movies <laughs> with someone <laughs> like like I've never, you know, had a I, I, I don't I don't know a lot of people who kind of have this reverence for old movies like I do. And so to talk about them at length uh, is is very fun and refreshing indeed. And so, yeah, so uh, The Sickness is out. You can buy The Sickness directly through the publisher. The publisher is called Uncivilized Books. They, they have been selling the book directly as it comes out. Otherwise, it becomes available through other comic channels. Like, you know, you're, you have to order it at your local comic shop, stuff like that. Yeah, I guess that's it. You know, I, I, I'm happy that this movie has gotten, I'm, I'm learning more and more that it's, it's like a lot of people's favorite movie. It, it, it didn't seem that way when I first saw it. Like, I, I feel like I thought I was like the only person who knew about this movie when I first saw it, which was like, I don't know, 15 years ago or some shit. But that's what great art does is it makes you feel like it's something meant for you. Yeah. Like you're discovering it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 happy that that this movie is like, you know, on the Criterion channel and it's like regarded as one of the best movies ever made. Like that's pretty fucking cool to me. You know, like, Hell yeah. Very validating to see a, a movie that has influenced me so much gain such a an amazing reputation makes me feel like I made the right choice in life being validated by the Criterion channel. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Who says no? Yeah. As far as my plugs, I'll first off plug the sickness again. Oh, because please. Oh, I, I had seen some, some sample pages online and I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. Oh. <laughs> and then when I got my hands on the actual books, you ain't seen nothing yet. If oh. all you're reading is those <laughs> sample pages, it's really, really incredible. As we've talked about, there is a lot of night of the hunter influence. So, if you're connecting with this movie, you'll definitely, definitely love the sickness. It is so great. Oh, thank you. That's so really, nice. really awesome. That's really nice of you. I appreciate it. Really, really, really appreciate the kind words. I, I, I also wanted to really quickly say, if you like the movie, you should definitely read the book by Davis Grubb. The book is really cool. It's also, it makes the movie seem so much cooler for how to, to understand how they adapted it. I think this movie is a, really great example of how a movie can be adapted from a book 
in a, in an efficient way that doesn't have to segment it to, to hell and back. Yeah. You learn about the world in new ways in the book. The book does, does great things that the movie did not do. The movie does great things that the book did not do. I highly recommend the book. It's a really, really cool book. Hell yeah. I actually haven't even read it, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah, you should. As far as uh, the show, yes, as Jenna mentioned, she is the latest in a line of amazing, amazing artists that I've been lucky enough to chat with. Corinne Halbert has talked Possession. Mm. Branson Reese has talked Cue the Winged Serpent. A.T. Pratt talking Eraserhead. Carly Minardo talking about Young Frankenstein. That's just the tip of the iceberg, folks. So go back, check out some of these older episodes. They're really, really fun. In addition to that, we've also gotten to talk about some other really great dense works lately. Under the Silver Lake with Hayes Davenport from Hollywood Handbook, Midsommar, Donnie Darko recently. Great movies with a lot to really dig into. So yeah, check out the back catalog. We're 5,000 downloads away from hitting our listener drive goal of 100,000 downloads by the end of the year. So tell a friend about the show. There's a 24-hour live stream on the 22nd of December if we hit it. So games, giveaways, guests, all kinds of fun shaping up. And if you really enjoyed the show, consider signing up for the Patreon, where for just $5, you get all kinds of great bonus episodes, including ones about video games, books. Our most recent breakdown was the novel Gideon the Ninth with the very funny comedian Bailey Norton, so that was a lot of fun. Two old queens were on to talk about their pick for the gayest horror movie ever made, uh, which was, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Well-deserved victory. (laughs) Really, really great stuff over there. $5 a month. Check it out. You also get the Discord where you get to talk to a lot of really cool, fun film nerds. And I say that with the greatest love in the world, Uh, but they are film nerds. So that sounds appealing. (laughs) Check that out. That's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.